Well, it's the new year, isn't it? I hope your resolutions are still working for you. Hope you're still working on those, and I hope your new year has gotten off to a wonderful, wonderful start. As many of you know, we kicked off a new series last weekend called Meaningful Membership, and we're simply going to highlight and kind of walk through the seven covenant expectations that we have at Grace Fellowship for for covenant members. This is going to be an awesome series. I think we're going to learn a lot together. But as we were reminded last weekend, we're going to grow deeper together in the Lord, and that's what's going to make it all worth it. As we looked at that first expectation, we saw that it reads something like this. I will love, honor, and obey Jesus Christ above all else in my life. Understanding that my life is my ministry, I will seek to represent Jesus well at all times. Now, I ask you to write by that uh, phrase the word lordship, because that's what this represents. We're looking for people who can just say with integrity and honesty, Jesus is Lord, he's number one, I'm seeking to build my life completely around him, to be a Christ-centered person. Now, as I shared, if we really understood that, we wouldn't need perhaps to say anything else. We wouldn't need six more statements because that says it all. That means, listen, if Jesus says, I want you to leave what you're currently doing and go serve in the most needy part of your city, then you would gladly go and do that and go on that great adventure with him because we not only owe our salvation to the Lord, we owe every, think about it, Every good thing in my life I owe to Jesus. That's what it means when he is Lord and when we're living our life for him. I I don't exist for any other reason, really, but to bring glory to him. I want to enjoy him forever, as the old catechism says. And so that's what our lives are all about. Now listen, as we walk through these disciplines, I want to say it again this week, I'll say it every week. If you're practicing these transforming disciplines out of a heart of love for Christ and you never become a covenant member of grace, I'm ecstatic because you're going to be cooperating with God in his transforming mission of you. And if you practice these positive, transforming seven disciplines that we're going to talk about out of a love for Christ, and the the motive is always important, that's why I'll keep highlighting that, out of a love for Christ, and you choose to become a covenant member of grace, I am doubly ecstatic because this is one awesome team, and I would love for you to be a part of this team. But make no mistake, it's not about covenant membership, not at all. It's all about the disciplines. That's why we're here, to urge all Christ followers to cooperate with him as he changes our lives, all right? So that was number one. But today, we want to unpack statement number two. Here's how it reads in the covenant. I will learn and practice the disciplines of private and corporate prayer. Now, let's just look at that for a moment. By private prayer by private. We're talking about engaging in a personal life of prayer like Jesus talked about. 
where he said, look, don't do it, make a big show out of it. Go to your closet and pray to your father who sees in secret. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you openly. So we're looking for people who are saying, look, I don't think prayer is just a good idea. Oh, everybody certainly would affirm that if they're a Christian. But I'm actually committed to growing in my life of prayer, to develop that. And this word corporate here simply means that when there are opportunities on the weekend, maybe during communion, when we say, would everyone please just take a moment here and kind of pray and examine your soul, you eagerly engage in that because you see the value in corporate prayer as well when we're all together. And when we have special opportunities, as we will have from time to time, that you say, you know what, I love being together with God's people and praying. So that's what we're saying. But really the main idea here is that you're going to be a learner. You're going to be with Christ in the school of prayer. H.G. Wells, the English author, used to love to kind of poke and pry with cynicism at the Anglican church, and he did it all of his life. And he loved to joke about one particular archbishop who was known for his bureaucratic flair, but his spiritual sterility. And one day, the archbishop got a note, a news brief that was a bit distressing to him. He didn't know what to do with it. And so, he walked into the cathedral, walked up to the altar, and in the anguish of his soul, he cried out, Oh, God! Now, what he didn't know is that there was a workman working way up on the ceiling of the cathedral who saw the archbishop walk in and heard this cry, and with a bit of a sense of humor, he said, yes, what can I do for you? And H.G. Wells said, at that moment, the archbishop fell over and died of a heart attack. He just didn't anticipate that if he were to call on the Lord, that God might actually answer. How are you doing pursuing a life of prayer? Today's text that we're going to look at in just a moment from Luke chapter 11, and if you're a person who loves to bring your own Bible or maybe you have a Bible app that you read from, I, I would encourage you to find that right now or you can follow along on the screens. Today's text is all about a lifestyle of prayer. Now, certainly everyone would say they believe prayer is important, but the truth is most of us may be losing the battle when it comes to growing in a life of effective prayer. Why is that? Maybe, maybe we're just too busy. We've got all these things going on. Maybe we just think that prayer is not all that practical, so why should we do it? We're just very pragmatic people. Or maybe our minds have been poisoned a little bit by this, the spirit of this age. And we really struggle with faith. And frankly, without faith, prayer is frustrated and even thwarted. Faith and prayer really go together. Sometime back, Time Magazine had an article where a busy person said, I'm running all day. My life is hectic. I've got phone calls, paperwork, and appointments. I push myself to the limit, fall into bed exhausted, Get up early the next morning and do it all over again. My output is tremendous. I'm getting a lot done. But I get this feeling sometimes 
So what? So what? What are you doing that really counts? And the person says, I have to admit, I don't know. Hey, listen, do you ever think that? Do those words and feelings typify your life? Busier than ever, running here and there, getting more done perhaps than ever, knowing more people than ever, but finding yourself increasingly fragmented, moving away from the center of the soul, which can only be exercised in a life of prayer. Well, folks, Jesus modeled a life of prayer, and today's text opens with a reference to that. Let's look at it, verse 1. It reads, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. Now, can I just... Can I just talk to your heart for just a moment at all of our different locations, whether you're in Saratoga today worshiping, uh, whether you're at Half Moon or Greenbush or Latham. Listen, can I, can I say something to you? If you say that your goal in life is to become a Christ-centered person, oh, I hope it is. We talk about that a lot at Grace, to, to, to keep growing to the point that, you know, every decision, every value, every part of your life is just filtered through the values of Jesus Christ. Everything is looked at through, what would Jesus want me to do? Can I tell you something? If that's you, you're not going to get very long in that pursuit until you run face-to-face -face with this issue of prayer. Because here's the deal, if you're going to be like Jesus... You need to understand, Jesus prayed a lot. Let me say that again. Jesus prayed a lot. Constantly, as you read the Gospels, you, you get the picture as it unfolds. He begins a, a busy day of ministry in prayer, like in Mark chapter 1. He, he commences his ministry in prayer in Luke 4 and Matthew 4, a 40-day vigil, actually. And then not only did Jesus commence his ministry with prayer, what you see as you read on is he carried out his ministry through prayer. He was constantly getting away, and he had these what seemed to be fixed places where he would kind of grow, go and pray. One night, he spent all night in prayer before he chose his disciples. It seems that many times he would go and spend hours in prayer and just try to get away from the crowds and recalibrate his soul. He commenced it in prayer. He carried it out through prayer. And according to the Bible, Jesus continues in prayer. Hebrews 7.25 says that he always lives to make intercession for us. Jesus prayed a lot. If we're going to be like him, we're going to be growing in our life of prayer. It was the great mathematician and French scientist and philosopher Blaise Pascal who made this statement, the greatest single, the greatest struggle a man has is to find himself alone for a period of time to be alone with God. Samuel Chadwick, one of my favorite writers on prayer from the 19th century, said the soul needs its silent places. It would revolutionize men's lives if they would get shut in with God in some secret place for at least a half hour a day. And Jesus did that regularly. 
And the disciples were watching this, and it intrigued them to no end. And it made them want to grow in their life. I wonder what it was that really got their attention. Was it the assurance that Jesus walked away with that was all over his face whenever he had been with the Father in prayer? Was it his discipline and the commitment he had? Was it the profundity of his words? Was it the passion they saw when he prayed? Or was it the answers he received? Something about Jesus' prayer life impressed them and they wanted it. Back in the late 1980s, I had the privilege of living in Buffalo, New York for uh, just over a year. And I say the privilege because when people hear of Buffalo, uh, they, they usually don't think of a privilege. They think, oh, really cold weather, a lot of wind off the lake, a lot of snow. Nah, 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 that's, that's all bad rap. Buffalo's a great place. But we had a Billy Graham crusade there back in the late 80s, and I was there for 13 months living in the Danny Brook apartments. And my particular apartment had two bedrooms in it, and, and so our, our director came to me at one point and said, hey, Jack Cousins, we all knew who Jack was, Jack is going to be coming in and being with our staff here for about four or five months. I was just wondering, you've got, a, you've got an extra bedroom there. Would you be willing for Jack to live there? And I said, oh, that'd be awesome. Everybody loved Jack Cousins. He was a spiritual giant on the Billy Graham team. And he was particularly, known, not just as a crusade director, he had directed the Kansas City Crusade and many other huge crusades where so many thousands had come to Christ. But Jack was particularly known as a man of prayer. He had a great sense of humor, too. He always had you in stitches when you were around him. But he was known mostly for his prayer life. You'd be talking to Jack about something, just sharing about how you'd had a tough morning. And before you knew it, he had his hand on your shoulder. He said, let's pray about that. And he'd just be praying. I mean, you didn't have time to say no or wait, let me explain more. No, he'd be praying. And I learned so much from him. But as I saw the passion and the power and the intimacy of Jack's prayer life with the Lord, I felt like I was kind of intruding on somebody's intimate conversation. Here's the point. Being around Jack Cousins made me want to grow and become a more effective prayer warrior. I wonder if the disciples felt like that with Jesus. Whatever it was that they saw, they came to him one day and they said, Lord, we need to learn this. Lord, teach us to pray. And so Jesus launches into a lesson. Now, we're studying today the abbreviated version of that. It's interesting. If you want to go home and compare Matthew's version in Matthew 6 with Luke's version in Luke 11, you'll see that Luke's is abbreviated. There's some phrases Matthew has that Luke does not include. In fact, if you look at Matthew 6, you'll see that there's a more extensive teaching here. For instance, in verse 8 of Matthew 6, we read, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they've received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who's unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, notice Jesus is assuming we will. Did you catch that? 
He didn't say if you pray. Hey, if you ever get around to prayer, ever. No, all of these admonitions begin with when. When you pray. Obviously, healthy disciples are going to be praying. Do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And then in verse 9 and following, Jesus launches into the model prayer. Now, some of you grew up in religious traditions and churches where you called that prayer the Our Father. And what a great prayer to pray on a regular basis. And you, you called it the Our Father, and you, you prayed it that, where, that way. Some of you called it the model prayer or the Lord's Prayer. But as we look at Luke's version of it in Luke 11, what I'm going to suggest to you is that the whole core of theology, practical theology, is contained in this prayer. Everything really that we need to know, just the core stuff, not all the extras, but the core stuff is reflected in this prayer. So we read on in verse 2. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Notice, he said, call God Father. The phrase there is pater imon oentis uranis in the Greek text. He's using the word pater, the typical word for father there. It's interesting. If you study the prayers in Scripture, and there are some great ones. By the way, you want an awesome Bible study? You, you, you want a study for a small group for maybe one season? Boy, there's an idea for you. Why don't you, with your small group, tackle all these major prayers in Scripture and just kind of examine the prayers? In the Bible? That would be one amazing study, Old and New Testament. And if you do that, you'll see that so many of the great prayers begin with one or more of the forms of either the Hebrew or Greek words for Lord. And typically, the word Lord, or any of its variations, it gives the idea of transcendence and majesty and power. Oh, that's good. And when we pray, we need to know that. We need to know that the one to whom we're praying is not a wimp. We need to know the one to whom we're praying is the unique God of the universe, the one who has all sovereign might and power. For instance, if you want to go home and read this, if you wanted to check out Daniel chapter 2, one of my favorite prayers in the Old Testament, you'll see that there is a wonderful prayer that Daniel prayed in anticipation of standing before the king, the one he knew as the most powerful man in the world at that time. And you know what? If you look at that prayer carefully, it is 80%. 80% of it is focused on the power and majesty and grandeur and sovereign nature of Almighty God. And we need that sometimes, don't we? Can I tell you? Some of you need that today. You got, you got things pressing in on you. You've got issues going on at work. You've got, you've got angst about what's going on in our world. You've been reading about, you know, all the drug issues and all the, the stuff going on in the Philippines and rulers out of control. And you look at all the terrorism around the world and all the acts of violence and, and this just crushes you. Can I tell you something? You need to be reminded 
that your life is in God's hands, and it's in the hands of one who has all majesty and power, and he knows your address. Boy, that makes a lot of difference when you're praying. And see, Daniel needed to be reminded of that because he realized that his very life was on the line. Sometimes prayer begins with remembering God's transcendence, Lord. But Jesus here said, look, pray Father. And Father, if, if Lord conjures up transcendence, Father conjures up immanence. In other words, God is close. He's right here. He's with us. He's nearby. It expresses intimacy. Now, let me ask you a question. What do we know about fathers? Now, I know, I'm very aware, painfully, that some of you had horrible, horrible experience with a father or a father figure. I'm so sad and so sorry about that. I've heard many of your stories and your your, your testimony. And for you, that word father doesn't conjure up good things at all. But for those of us who had generally positive experiences with a father, what a father really ought to be, the word father conjures up some awesome things. It, it kind of suggests to us someone who has strength, but it is marked by gentleness. Someone who has resources and is willing to share them and provide. The word father conjures up someone who's always there when we need them. Someone who's willing to listen carefully and offer wisdom. And Jesus said, call God father. Oh, I like that. And particularly those who may not have had a positive earthly father. God can become a father to the fatherless. God can become a father to the orphan. God can become a father to those who had a horrible experience. Jesus said, say, our father. The next phrase is, hallowed be your name. Now, the opposite of hallowed would be blasphemy. And I'm sad to say that usually, I think, it's safe to say in our culture, when God is referred to or his name is evoked in conversation, it's usually not in a hallowed way. Would you agree? It's usually as a curse word or it's usually used with some expletive. And so God's name is not really honored in the culture. But for the healthy Christian, you want God's name to be spoken with reverence. So this prayer teaches that when you call on the Father by name, it should bring this awesome respect and reverence with it. That's what we do when we pray. And I, I begin all my prayers that way, just by addressing God my Father. And I thank Him for being such a good Father. It was a song that we sing at our various campuses. You're a good, good father. You are, you are, and it is so true. Next, Jesus said, your kingdom come. Now, I want to warn you, you better be careful about that phrase. In fact, some of you, I'm not being serious, but you may just want to cut that phrase out for a while because I'm telling you, you may not be ready for that one. In the extended version of this prayer, in Matthew 6, Jesus adds the phrase, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
The reason I say be careful about praying this one is what you're saying is not only do I want your priorities and your power and your principles to be manifested on this earth in life, but here's what you're saying. Here's where you better be careful. When you pray this prayer, you're saying I'm willing to commit myself to see that come about. I want to get in on your kingdom values being realized on earth, right, just as they are in heaven. Too often we're sucked into other kingdoms, I think we'd have to admit, whether they be kingdoms of wealth or pleasure or leisure, but for the healthy Christ follower, he or she day by day is willing to pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, and I want all of your kingdom's fruition to be seen in my own home, in my own life, in everything that I can be a part of. Now, at this point, this prayer moves into three requests that I'm going to rather quickly move through. Again, it's an abbreviated version. So, uh, the statements are kind of terse. They're very, very staccato in nature in Luke's version. And I want to show you how these three requests are really the core theology that every healthy Christian needs. Verse 3. Give us each day our daily bread. First of all, if you're taking notes here, this is a prayer that speaks to the present and celebrates God as our provider. It speaks to the present and celebrates God as our provider, and we're dependent on him. This prayer takes us right down to the molecules of daily living. It goes right to the core of things. God wants us to be, have a spirit of dependence on him. You say, but Pastor Rex, I'm a self-made person. Why do I need to pray for daily bread? My bank account is bulging. My pantries are overflowing with food. I, I don't need to depend on God. I've got enough food to last me for years. I've got all kinds of things. Listen, I don't get this prayer then you don't get what a life with Jesus is about. You really don't. You really don't. Oh, it's good that your pantries are overflowing. It's good your bank account is bulging. Nothing wrong with that. But do you understand who gave you the ability to produce that wealth? Do you understand that? As Moses, the great leader, was talking to the Israelite people before they were about to occupy an awesome promised land that God was about to give them, listen to what he said to them. And as we read along here in Deuteronomy 8, I'm going to kind of fill in what the modern equivalent of this might be, okay? Moses says to these people, and they're, they're kind of just like us, eager to move into the, a wonderful, wise, positive, awesome future. He says, when you've eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he's given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, and when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large, in other words, when you advance in the company and start climbing the ladder of success, and when your financial portfolio is getting diversified so that it's more stable and less risky, and your silver and gold increase, my goodness, you've got all the gadgets, the house looks better, you expand it, you move to a better neighborhood, 
you're driving a BMW, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud, and you'll forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, who brought you through college when you were in debt and allowed you to slam dunk that debt and move into a much better place in life. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it's he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your forefathers as it is today. So one final word on this before we move to the second petition. This idea of depending on God for daily bread, our daily sustenance, is right out of the book of Exodus as the people were fed daily with manna. And if you know that story, you can read it in Exodus 16 and other places. They could not hoard manna for the next day or it would spoil. You had to get fresh manna every day. In other words, you, God was teaching them, you've got to be dependent every day. I want that spirit to grow in you. And that's what God is looking for in us. The second petition here is in verse 4. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. This is a prayer that looks to the past and celebrates God as our Redeemer. In other words, it looks backward, the past hours, days, months, years. It's a call for me to do an inventory, to look at the places and times in my life when I've defied God or when I've drifted away. Now, if the first prayer about daily bread recognizes God as provider, the second here prayer rep- represents God as redeemer. And this humbles me. Because I have to acknowledge when I come to God with my sins, not only do I need daily bread, I need daily mercy. Am I the only one who needs daily mercy? Let me tell you something. I don't just need to depend on God for daily bread. I need daily mercy because the battle, the struggle is real. The struggle with sin and self and Satan. And notice this tagline that he adds here, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. Boy, that's one of the strongest statements in Scripture. You see, the idea here is that it's kind of no point in asking God to forgive us our sins if we've not been willing to forgive those who've sinned against us. This prayer is so practical. In fact, can I tell you something just kind of pastorally? I believe if everybody really regularly prayed these themes, you don't have to recite this, wrote, it's okay if you do, but I don't think Jesus ever intended for us just to recite this prayer, wrote, and just say it, especially if we don't understand it. I think what he meant for us to do was take it as a model and pray in this manner. Pray these great themes and If everybody practiced this request for forgiveness and the humility that that requires, you know what? We'd be a lot more mentally, emotionally, and physically healthy. Can I tell you something I've learned? 
and talking with mental health professionals, psychiatrists, psychologists for many years now, they will tell you if they could just help people deal with guilt from the past and ongoing guilt, if they could just help them deal with relational strife where they're really unwilling to release someone from their own vengeance and the feeling of, I want to get back with this person. They could dismiss them as clients many times because it's those things that just keep them caught in a web and they spin and they spin and they spin in this mode that is so unhealthy and it's destroying their life. If we just practice this, keep short accounts with God and with others. Listen, we would be so much healthier. And every day we would have the freedom of being able to look anyone in the eye and look to the heavens and say, God, I'm yours. And there's nothing between you and me. We're looking for covenant members with that kind of humble attitude who understand they not only need daily bread, but they need daily mercy. And here's the third and final part of the prayer. If the first part recognizes the present, the second part looks to the past. Thirdly, this is a prayer that looks to the future and celebrates God as our deliverer. Verse 4b reads, and lead us not into temptation. Wait a minute, what does that mean? Is this saying that sometimes God tempts people, so you better be careful. God may be tempting you here. No, no, no. Scripture does not teach that God tempts us. In fact, James says in James 1, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he's dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin when it's full grown gives birth to death. I don't see how that could be any clearer. God tempts no one. Well, what's going on here? Well, the word translated temptation also can be translated testing or trials. What we're really asking for here is, God, uh, don't lead us into circumstances in life, those testings and trials which can defeat us and overwhelm us. God, give me the resources today to, to, to live up to the highest possible challenge of this day. Don't allow us to be destroyed and rendered ineffective and crushed by the weight of testing. What a powerful prayer. It's kind of what Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, oh, he knew what was ahead of him. Oh, let this cup pass from me, if it be possible. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. We're saying, God, I don't want to be in any moments where I wouldn't represent you well or where I would let you down. Now, as we move toward our close here, let me ask you a question. Have you ever prayed this prayer and just kind of said the words like a machine maybe, but didn't think one bit about what you were really saying. Boy, I have. I have. And you know what I pray, among other things, that would come out of this message is that we would never again do that. But that when we pray this prayer, we would always do it with a thankful heart. Because of all that it contains and all it represents, it is the centerpiece, the core theology 
that we all need day after day. Not just to survive, but to thrive. Richard Foster is a writer I really enjoy, and he's written a lot on prayer. He has a whole book called simply Prayer. And Foster says the desperate need today is not for a great number of intelligent people or gifted people, but the great need of today is for some people, some deep people, he says. And deep people come from those who've mastered the life of prayer. William Wilberforce, who lived about 200 years ago in England, he knew that giving leadership in Parliament and helping his country come out of the degradation of slavery was going to take more than a gifted mind or the charisma of a politician. And did you know that William Wilberforce, the great leader who led the fight against slavery and what it tried to abolish slavery all throughout the UK, he wrote in his journal one day, in the calmness of the morning, before the mind is heated and wearied by the turmoil of the day, one has a season of unusual importance of communion between God and himself. And amen to that. So I want to tell you today, brothers and sisters, that the life of prayer is worth getting up for 15, 30 minutes, even an hour earlier than we do. And the life of prayer is worth giving up some priorities for in order to make it one of the central disciplines of our lives that God uses to recalibrate our souls. I kind of wonder if the H.G. Wells story of the archbishop who died at the altar is more than just a joke. I actually wonder if Wells, cynic that he was, was actually putting his finger on what would happen to a lot of us if we spoke out of a moment of difficulty and we were actually surprised because God actually answered. When we're growing in our life of prayer, can I tell you something? We're not going to be shocked when God answers because he does hear. And like a loving father, he does respond. Thank you, Lord, for your love and the teaching of our Lord Jesus of how to grow in prayer. Father, like those early disciples, we say, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. Help us to grow in this life of prayer. We don't want to just talk about it or give a thumbs up and say it's a good idea. Yep, it's a good idea. We need more prayer. No, no. Lord, we want to go way beyond that and become committed to it and to actually grow as warriors in the school of prayer. Thank you, Lord, that that's your desire for us. And thank you that you're going to be our teacher all along the way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Amen. Would the ushers please come forward as we receive our tithes and offerings?